Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Happy New Year? Like, it's no longer 2017, thank God. It's 2018. Last year was coined the year of anxiety for lots of reasons. I don't know if you know this, more Xanax was... Uh, prescribed than any other drug in, or in any other time in history in the U.S. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the U.S. and the state it's in, but that's fine. We're not going to talk about that. <clears throat> but it's a new year, and like New Year's, it brings all sorts of possibility and hope, and most of all, change, right? How many of you wrote out New Year's resolutions? Raise your hands. Come on. You're in a safe place. You're the, that, wow, very few people. Raise your hands. Raise your hands. All of you that wrote resolutions. Okay. Oh, let me try this. How many of you want to change something about yourself this year? Raise your hand. That's better. Okay. There you go. 95% of those that write resolutions will fail by the end of this month. That's crazy. Why? Because it's hard to change. Change is hard, is it not? Like we do everything to resist change in our lives. Everything is designed in our lives to keep us comfortable, secure, and safe. 
And the, the, the habits, the thoughts, the, I, the things that we have going on in our life, most of us actually don't want to change uh, deep down. Where we want to change, but we actually can't change. It's too challenging or difficult. And um, there's all sorts of reasons for that. One of the reasons is we fail is because we think that change involves mustering up willpower. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm committed, I have willpower, I have this, this will to change, or I have this desire to change, but the truth is, will actually has no power. The will is the hum- human capacity to choose. So you wake up in the morning, and if you're me, it's, do I wear black or gray? Those are the only two options, basically, that I have. For you, it's a lot of other colors. I have the same Outfit. So, but, but it's our ability to choose a red shirt or a blue shirt. That's what the will is. And so actually, the will itself doesn't have power in itself to do anything. And change is something else. So how many of you raised your hand that you want to change something in your life? Let me just, let's, let's participate today. Okay, so here's the deal. You won't change because you want to. You won't change because you pray really, really hard. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will come and miraculously do some radical transformational things in your life. That's absolutely the case. But most of the time it's rare when it comes to things like, I want to be more patient when my kids are going to bed, like getting them in bed. You know what I'm saying? Anyone here struggle with that, like what can seem like an hour to get them into bed from the time they're done eating? Anyone? No. Okay, when you, well, those of you that don't have kids yet, let me just tell you, practice pray, patience now because there will be a time when it's no longer practice. You actually have to learn it because you're going to lose yourself when you're reading books about God's love because it's past their bedtime. <laughs> Maybe none of you have struggled with that. But that okay, amen to you, brother. <laughs> All the parents are like, okay, yeah, that's me, okay. Um, yeah, so I talked about that a couple weeks ago. So you're not going to change because you pray or because you start coming to church. It won't, you won't change. You won't change because you downloaded that, that app or you're doing the Whole30 like me. Like whole, anyone doing like the Whole30 right now? Anyone doing like a diet modification for the month of January? Just the worst thing ever. Like literally day five, I was, um, I was just... I was not a kind man at all to my wife. And so, but it's all has to do. So change is hard. Uh, and what we, what we, the world knows this. So self-help is a billion dollar industry. And there are amazing titles out there. The best life now, better life. Like learning to not give in, you know, a bad word. And so like, there's all sorts of best-selling books about getting you to change. Because at, at a primal level, we know deep down inside there's a gap between who we are and who we want to be. Would you agree? Okay, so are we on the same page? Okay, so, this, this is, so the, the question I have to answer today is how do we change? How do we change then? And, and this is what I want us to think through, and we're teaching through it in our series, Practicing the Way of Jesus. So we started this series a few weeks ago before um, the, the beginning of Advent. We started this long series in this direction of practicing the way of Jesus for us we are called as a church to be apprentices or disciples of Jesus. Um, and apprentices or disciples have three goals in their life. To, number one, be with Jesus. Number two, to become like Jesus. And number three, to do what Jesus did. What you need to know if you're new to this church or new to a church in general is that what's happened in culture of Christianity is we've made Christianity about believing things about God to get you to go somewhere after you die. 
That was never the intention of Jesus. It was never about just believing the right things. It was a, Jesus says it's a way of life. His, uh, he comes to bring us a whole new way to live here and now. It's not just about what you believe. It's about how you live here and now. Life on earth matters. And, and so for us as disciples, we want to learn to live the way of Jesus. And to live the way of Jesus, for most of us, we have to change. Would you agree? So I did this big overview um, a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, and, and we're going to focus today in the next several weeks on becoming like Jesus. How do we become like Jesus? How do we change? There's, if you were to sum up the three goals of apprenticeship to Jesus, you would use uh, maybe this definition, definition. Followers of Jesus are those who arrange their whole life around transformation. You see, there's this New Testament word, transformation. And, and the Greek word is where we get the word metamorphosis or metamorphism. And um, the definition I love the most comes from um, the Webster's Dictionary. It says this, uh, transformation is a profound change in form from one stage to the next in the life history of an organism, as from the caterpillar to the pupa and from the pupa to the adult butterfly. So that's the idea of transformation. You see, what we believe here at this church, I'm just doing some background for most of us that are new, is we believe that the more you become like Jesus, the more you become your true self. That those of you that are longing for the, your heart's desire to be fulfilled, that will come as you pursue the way of Christ. That he's not trying to turn us into robots that don't have fun. He's trying to release us with the kingdom uh, of life and bring that life everywhere we go. To, uh, anyone here want to have more peace this year? More joy, more patience, more love, kindness, more self-acceptance, more power. Anyone want more power? Greater or intimacy in your relation? Anyone want greater intimacy in their marriage? To actually love their spouse the way God intended you to love your spouse. So all of these things actually can happen as you become more like Jesus. That's, that's the secret here. That it, it's not just come to faith, say a prayer, and keep living as you once lived. Actually, there is this process that we're after of, of spending the rest of eternity becoming more like Jesus. That process we've identified as spiritual formation. So a few weeks ago, we talked about a spiritual formation paradigm. Spiritual formation is the process of becoming more like Jesus in your everyday, ordinary life. Does all this sound familiar? If if you've never been here, it doesn't sound familiar. That's totally fine. Um, But here's what I want to just give you some some background, and we're going to talk about uh, what we're going to do the next several weeks, and we'll we'll teach on one specific thing today. Um, this is all just review for us. So a few weeks ago, I I talked about this um, spiritual formation paradigm. What is spir- spiritual formation? Is the process of becoming like Jesus in the Christian tradition? But spiritual formation is not just a Christian thing because you are being shaped and formed by lots of things. So we we developed two different paradigms. Here's the first one, and I'll put this slide up. It's the unintentional spiritual formation paradigm. So this is what it looks like. Start at the top, and we'll work our way around. So you as a human being are being shaped by the stories you believe, and we'll talk about that today. So you're shaped by your stories. You're shaped by the relationships you have, your coworkers, your roommates, your friends, the people you hang out with. You're shaped by your habits, the daily habits, shape you. 
Um, and, and there's some philosophers out there that say you are the sum of what you do on a daily basis. Not just what you think, but their basic habits and rituals in your life. Um, so all of these things shape who you are, what you believe, how you vote, what you look like, why you dress the way you do, why you cut your hair short and everyone likes your short hair and you're wondering why didn't you tell me you didn't like my long hair and so now you're worried and insecure about the past year. Just, I'm just speaking, you know, if, if that's, it, it could be you. I'm not struggling, thank you so much, I appreciate it. Um, and the other place that you're shaped is by or formed is by your environment. So you're, you're formed by your neighbors, by your community, by your workplace, but also by now there's a second place, the internet and social media and being, um, you're being shaped by your phone. You're being um, programmed by social media and advertisements like that are on Amazon and Facebook. It's absolutely crazy. So we live in this two worlds where we're being shaped by th both those environments over a long period of time. Okay, so this is the unintentional spiritual formation. If you want more information on this, I did a whole talk on this and what we're going to talk about in the next slide. So what we said is what we want as followers of Jesus and how we change is to this process of intentional spiritual formation. So we replace the stories we believe with biblical teaching or true narratives. Replace false narratives with true narratives. We're going to talk about that today. The other way um, we change and uh, transform is through community. We're going, moving from relationships to community or covenantal community or family. We describe this as uh, you, your casual relationships with people are going to influence you. But when you become a Christian, you walk out your faith together in Christ with a community. So we have house churches here. This is the environment where that community takes place. And we will learn to be disciples of Jesus in an intentional covenantal community. The third thing is practices or spiritual disciplines. We replace bad habits with spiritual disciplines. So for me, I talked about in the hurry talk this year, I'm committed to slowing down. And it is the hardest discipline I've ever done in my entire life. I fast. I've done Sabbath. That was pretty hard. I've done all like silence and solitude retreats where I don't speak for days at a time. All these amazing spiritual disciplines. The hardest one is to slow down, to drive in the slow lane to get in the longest line at the checkout. It's the craziest thing because everything inside of me has been wired for efficiency. But I see that Jesus was, lived an unhurried life. And so if I want to be more like him, I need to practice his lifestyle, not just what he taught. So we, we replace bad habits like always being in a hurry with disciplines to challenge the bad habits. Another example is if you're always on your phone, maybe the discipline is to shut your phone off once a day. Or not be on your phone as much. Just disciplining. Are you guys with me on that? The other place that we're shaped is by the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit comes to transform us. He becomes the environment in which we experience transformation. All this happens over a long period of time. So the next four weeks, we're going to do teaching today. We're going to do practices next week. I'll be preaching on that. Three weeks, we'll talk about community. Our favorite, Megan Marshman, is coming to preach again. Remember Megan? She came while I was gone. She's an amazing preacher. Um, and she will be teaching about community, and then Bill will talk about the Holy Spirit, and then I'll do another talk on the cross, because there's this whole other section about the cross. Are you guys with me on this? Unintentional spiritual formation, intentional spiritual formation. So let's jump in with the idea of teaching, okay? So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll just jump in from there. This is all intro. Lord, I just pray that your, um, your spirit would, would illuminate, illuminate the things that need to go the thoughts that need to be 
uh, transformed? Um, would you give us an imagination, reimagination for life because of what you come to do? I pray that through this message we would begin the process of transformation in your name. Amen. Okay, so this is the subject. We're, we're replacing the stories we believe with biblical teaching. It begins with your mind. Your transformation begins with, with replacing false narratives with true biblical narratives. So what are the narratives that I'm talking about? What you need to know is this. From early on, we are told stories by our parents which help us interpret how life is or how life ought to be. And we naturally are drawn to stories. When we have a significant experience in life, one that shapes us, good or bad, we always, in our memory, turn it into a story or a narrative. And narrative is the central function of the human mind. Stay with me as I, I want you to understand what's going on because we'll get into the scriptures in just a second. We turn everything into a story in order to make sense of life. So we dream in narrative, in story form, daydream in narrative. We remember, anticipate, hope, despair, believe, doubt, plan, revise, criticize, construct, gossip, learn, hate, and love, all in narrative or story form. We can't avoid it. This is what the human mind does. We are narrative animals, one writer says. We are narrative animals, story animals. We eat it up. Our stories help us navigate the world to understand right from wrong. And our stories that we believe provide meaning and purpose for us. So we collect these narratives throughout our life. We first have family narratives that we believe. Our families shape us. Early on, we learn some of the most important Ethical questions, some of the most important worldviews are developed by our, uh, our families, our immediate families. They develop uh, uh, questions such as, who am I? Why am I here? Um, am I valuable? All of these are formed in an early age. Our worldview is shaped and solidly rooted by the time we're five years old. Five. We will have 90-something percent of our worldview formed and ingrained in our our lives through stories, and we develop these positive narratives. For example, a positive narrative for me growing up was I could do anything that I put my mind to. That's what my mom taught me all the time, that I could do anything I put my mind to. I could be anything I wanted to be. There was no limit to that as long as I worked hard. So I literally believed I could be an astronaut, an actor. Um, she, she had this funny phrase. My mom would say, I don't care what you do. You could be anything you want to do as, as long as you worked hard at it. Um, um, I'll love you the same as long as you loved it. Even if you were a ditch digger, I would love you if that's what you wanted to do. A ditch digger. That was like her, like, that would, that would be like the lowest thing in her mind of, of <laughs> digging ditches. Um, and, uh, but I had this amazing narrative. So I, my whole life, it was like, oh, I could do that. There was, never a, there was never a question on whether or not I could go and do something. That was a positive childhood narrative. Do you guys have similar things? But I also had a negative childhood narrative to name one. Um, I had this narrative that I constructed, which was basically to be loved was to be the best at whatever I did. Like, so love equals being successful, being accomplished, being winning equals love. And that narrative drove me to far places, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but we develop these narratives from a young age. And, and it's more than just positive or negative. It's how we see the world. We also have cultural narratives, stories that we buy into. We learn from the world around us 
how to live based on the particular region of the world we grow up in. In America, for example, we're taught rugged individualism. The stories we're told in a young, at a young age have to do with pioneering and revolution. We can't help it. But also in Western culture, the narrative we buy into is romantic consumerism. So we, we, if we have a fight with our spouse, we buy them flowers. <laughs> like that's like one example. Other, other cultures do not do that. Why would you fix marriage problems with buying something? If you pull back and just see, well, the re- that's been sold to us by this romantic consumerism that was birthed in 1920s and 1930s, and especially after the war, where consumerism became the, uh, the dominant theme for economic growth. We don't realize this, but that's this culture narrative we're swimming in is to be happy is to buy more stuff. Are you with me? Family narrative, cultural narratives, religious narratives. We are taught through the pulpit how God works and who he is, what he's like and how we ought to live. And all of, there's so many different types of narratives that, that shape our lives. And here's the thing. Here's why it's important. In fact, narratives, once in place, determine much of our behavior with, with regard, uh, without regard to their accuracy or helpfulness. So once these stories are stored in our minds, they stay there largely unchallenged until we die. Here's the point. These narratives that we have, that most of us don't identify or haven't identified yet, um, are running our lives and ruining our lives. Once we find these narratives, so this is why it's crucial, first of all, to get the right narratives in our head, the right teaching and stories in our head. Um, Because once we find the broken narratives, the false narratives in our minds, then we can measure those narratives against Jesus' narratives. And this is the beginning of transformation. See, Jesus' narratives are truth. He himself is truth. The key to transformation is adopting his way of thinking, adopting the stories that he teaches as truth, that he reveals. He reveals what God is like. God is pulsating with goodness, generosity, power, love, and beauty. To know the God of Jesus is to know the truth about who God really is. And Jesus taught primarily through stories because they're memorable. You can't argue against them. And because, uh, well, they're better because they stay with us. So we might not remember the Beatitudes, but we know the prodigal son story, don't we? That's the power of story. So here's, here's all that to say. So transformation and change begins with learning to replace false narratives with true Jesus narratives or teachings. Are you with me? Go to Mark chapter 1. Now we're into the Bible. My, my favorite passage of Scripture. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says this. Um, uh, John, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. Do I need to give you time to go open your Bibles? I'll give you time. <clears throat> I'm not in a hurry. <laughs> except when I'm driving or putting my kids to bed or eating or trying to get somewhere on time. You like my modification of that song? Just true. First, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. So this is Mark's summary of all of Jesus' teachings. Mark 1, uh, 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is the the summary of Jesus' teaching. The time has come, he said, uh, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. 
So Jesus says, the time has come. All the Old Testament, everything you were long, the, old, the Israelites were waiting for is being fulfilled in this moment. It's a time to act. It's opportune in this moment. The kingdom of God has come near. The reality that God brings, his reign and rule is available. You can reach out and touch it. The way life was intended to be in the first place before sin entered into the world, a life marked by joy, peace, love, forgiveness of sins, um, wholeness and shalom, light marked by justice and healing is available for all. Repent and believe the good news. And that phrase together is, hey, align yourself to this new reality and become a full participate, participant in this new vision of life, the kingdom that's breaking forth through the life of Jesus. That word repent, though, or repentance is a very fascinating word. The definition means to change one's mind. So the call and the response that Jesus has to his message is to change your mind about how life really works. Uh, one, um, one definition is this. I loved it from, uh, would you go to the next slide for me? Thanks, Seth. So that's the Greek word, to change one. Go to the next slide. It says, this is uh, from one author. He says, to change one's way of life, this is to repent, to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So you change your whole life with a new attitude or mindset. Um, to repent is to reimagine your life from the ground up around the kingdom of God. You with me on this? So it's not just stop sinning. Reimagine, dream up your whole life again because there's a new way to be human because of Jesus. This is what it means to repent. <clears throat> and re reimagination is the first step to transformation. And this is what teaching is aimed at. Good teaching is first and foremost at, at the mind and imagination. We remember we said this a few, few weeks ago that teaching counters the stories we believe. And when it's done well, it gets into your head an alternative vision of this good life. And it says to you, the things you believe were a lie. The narrative you bought into was a lie. The script you live from is no longer good enough. There's a better one out there. But the problem is to, to convince ourselves that we're believing in lives. It's, we have to rewire our brains towards transformation of the renewal of mind. Are you with me on this? So, I'll get to the story, but when I, at an early age, developed this narrative that to be loved is to be successful, to change that narrative that was embedded over a lifetime is nearly impossible without radical intentionality and transformation. And we'll, I'll tell you about that in one second. Go to Romans 12. Romans 12, this is like the, the turning point of this epic book by Paul. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 He's writing to the church in Rome. This is a missionary letter. He's raising support. If you ever want to know the purpose of Romans, if you've ever read it, it's to raise money to go to Spain. How cool is that? Any missionaries here? I was talking to a missionary family from Israel. And if you think about sending out funding letters, think about the book of Romans. <laughs> this was a fundraising letter to get to Spain and preach the gospel. And he, he writes this beautiful thing all about what God does and what, what, what we are because of what God has done. And then he turns, this is like the turning point, the hinge point. After 11 chapters, Paul says this, therefore, in view of everything I've said, uh, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing 
to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in view of all that God has done for you already, you can't do anything to earn it. The only fitting response to what God has done is to offer your body and lives as a living sacrifice. And right before this, he was talking about the sacrificial system, dead animals being sacrificed to atone for the the sin of our life. That's been done with because of Jesus on the cross. The only proper response is to give everything we have back to God. Are you with me? Is that a good enough explanation? But, But then he goes on and he says this. I love this. Do not be conformed. Conform. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we not be conformed? He says, this is the practical. This is the step. By being transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So step one for not being conformed to the world is transforming our minds, having a renewed mind. And that, that is it for Paul. He talks all the time about this ongoing process of renewing our mind to that of Christ. He was obsessed with our minds being renewed by God. And so uh, 1 Corinthians 2.16, it says this, we have the mind of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Colossians 3 verse 3, set your minds on things above. Philippians 3 5, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says that the beginning of transformation begins with the renewal of our mind, replacing false narratives with true narratives. <clears throat> Dallas Willard says it this way, The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing destructive images and ideas with the image and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves towards a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. That's pretty deep. You with me? Now what what we don't realize is science has used what, what Paul, Jesus, and Dallas Willard have put together is what science has called neuroplasticity. Stay with me for a second because this is so important. We're going to talk about science and brain, uh, what happens in our brain, something called neuro, uh, it's called, um, let me find it because I'm not an expert in in brain psychology or science, but it has to do with uh, brain mapping. Okay, so check this out. So neuroplasticity is the ability for the mind to create new patterns of thought, okay? Here's a quick refresher. It comes from Hebb's axiom, if you're taking notes. Um, But it's basically, it's like those that pray together stay together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Okay, so is that good? Neurons that fire together, wire together. And here's what Dr. Kurt Thompson says. Stay with me because it's so important. I promise it'll get real practical. Neurons that repeatedly activate in a particular pattern, are statistically more likely to fire in that same pattern the more they are activated. Once the initial neurons in a network fire, there is a very high probability that the related neurons will also activate and move along the same bioelectrical pathway to the end of that network. The more frequently the patterns have been fired, the most easily they will fire in the same pattern in the future. That is why you immediately recall the ingredients and steps to preparing spaghetti, which you make every week, but need to consult the cookbook 
when preparing a holiday dish you haven't made in years. So one neuroscientist says it this way, an analogy. You're hiking through the jungle with a machete. The trail you hack out is your thought life. The jungle is the billions of synapses in your brain. When you think a thought, it's like cutting a trail with a machete through the jungle. If you think it again, the trail gets clearer. If you think it again, it gets even more clear. Pretty soon, when you come to the part of that jungle, you just automatically take that route without thinking about it at all, even if it's destructive. Neurological mapping is a good thing, and it's a bad thing. It's a good thing like helping you remember your kids' names, <laughs> but it's a bad thing because we get stuck in mental and emotional patterns of to that are toxic, which we all can relate to. So for example, let's go back to my childhood memory. Thanks for being my, my therapy. This is all, you guys are awesome. I'll pay you all later. Um, well, I'll just process things that I've processed over the years. So for example, you might carry around negative childhood memories or narratives that have shaped how you lived and interacted in the world. So for me, to be loved is to be the best at what I do. I grew up with this particular worldview that said um, my value came from my success, what I was able to do. I had to be the best. I had to succeed. I had to work harder than anyone else. And nobody told me this. This is how I interpreted the world and how I experienced love through the validation of the things that I did. So I went all over the place with this. And in high school, I was the president and involved in everything. I was in the, the all-male hip-hop dance team, the comedy sports <laughs> improv team. I was the captain of the improv. I was, on every, I was in every play because I was an actor. I played sports. I was the National Honor Society president. I was ASB, Renaissance president. I was like doing everything. My senior year in college, I had to take 27 units my last semester to graduate on time. I volunteered at church for 20 hours a week. I also had a job and a girlfriend, Alex, who I eventually got engaged to. Like, so like the, and I got straight A's. Be, why? Not, not because, because I was broken. Because I was broken. Now, it produced drive. It produced success. It, I was afraid of failure, so there was all this fear around not getting an A. I have this great story. Bill Doctrine was one of my professors. He's our other teaching pastor. He taught last week, and uh, he's also a mentor of mine. He's changed my life. And um, since I was 19, he was my pastor. And he, he, I remember I was taking my, one of my last classes. I had to write commentary, like an individual, individual commentary for all of John's literature. So John, the gospel, first, second, third, and Revelation. And I was so stressed. I was writing so much. He says, Darren, he, we're meeting for coffee. He's like, hey, Darren, when are you going to let good enough be good enough? And it was like, hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I had interpreted the world through this lens that I could not get Bs or Cs. And it was like, it was such a relief. And I, I constantly, Alex, Alex is constantly telling me this when I'm, when I'm frantic around the house. Hey, Darren, when are you going to let good enough be good enough? Oh, but so it, it comes, it comes from this place of brokenness. And what it produced was, yes, this drive and success, whatever, but insecurity. What I interpreted life to be was I am not enough. Who I am is not enough without doing all this stuff, without being the best, successful, having these accomplishments. So I, it produced radical insecurity. I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not good looking enough. I don't know. Everything. I'm too young. Everything was about scarcity of life. And it was so destructive. And as I got older, I got married, and it was still a problem. I started this church, 
and it was still a problem. It led to me burning out. We grew our church, and I was, I was doing everything you could possibly do because of this narrative that to be loved is to make everyone happy, to be the best at what I do, to be better than the guy next door or the guy next to me, and to ha- just drive, drive, drive. And I, I started, it started to unravel in my marriage. It started to unravel in the church planning. But most of all, what happened is it, it was confronted when I became a father. And this is where it hit me that the process of changing the narrative was long and hard and it still would creep in. But here's what it has to do. In order to make a new pattern of thought, we have to lay a new trail through the jungle of our mind. And we do that by thinking new thoughts over and over and over and over again. until um, it. So in order to think new thoughts, we have to do repetition over and over and over again. For me, what happened was I realized that this whole narrative which might have started as a family narrative, was anchored in my view of God. That God was a disappointed, disapproving father. And to be loved by the father, I had to do. Go, 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 go. I had to plant church. I had to fast. I had to give more money away. I had to feed the homeless and lead a small group. And it was absolute burnout. My family, and and, and then I became a dad, and this is the gift of being a parent is I became a father to a son, and the emotions, the powerful, miraculous emotions I had for my first boy, Ezra, began to challenge the false narratives I had towards God. And God started to speak to me through this relationship with Ezra. He's like, if you love him this much, how much do you think I love? And, and I had to sit with the text, the Bible, and actually stop preaching it for others and start believing it and practicing it for myself. 2017, Alex and I were reflecting. We, were, we were, um, got away for a few days with some friends, went to Palm Springs, and we, were, we, were, we had a night out, and we were talking about reflecting over 2017. And I was telling her, this has been the most significant year for lots of reasons. But one of the most amazing reasons is that I actually believe the scripture for myself. I believe that the narratives, and I've said this playfully, and I'll still play it, and I want you to repeat it after me, that God loves you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> Say that with me. God loves you, but I'm his favorite. Now, anyone that's resisting that statement, you haven't experienced the love of God then. Because the author of John calls himself the beloved disciple. Let's Let's not laugh about this. This is an essential reality for every believer. And you have to experience it for yourself. You can't just believe it. You can't just do practices to get you there. It has to radically consume your life. And that's what's happened to me. And this narrative over a long period of time where it was a discipline. I can't even tell you. I was, I was doing breathing exercises. Father, I belong. Abba, I belong to you. Abba, Father, I belong to you. You love. I was, I was meditating on the, the narrative of Jesus being baptized. and the, So Jesus doesn't do anything at all. No ministry, nothing at all. No obedience. The first thing he does is get baptized and the father affirms him. You are my son. I'm well pleased. That you're my beloved. Before he can do anything, he's deeply loved by the father. That's true for us. And I believe that now. And that narrative has changed my performance. It's changed how I preach. It's changed how I live with my family. It's changed everything over a long period of time. These kinds of narratives are all over the place. 
And we need to start identifying the false narratives that are ruining our lives. There are narratives about identity, narratives about value, narratives about purpose, narratives about success and meaning, narratives about your community and how you interact in community, narratives around marriage. This is probably one I keep coming into. I meet with couples all the time. And I'm, I'm like going to the scriptures and saying, this is the vision of marriage. We, we, um, it says, Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we start with mutual submission. Wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. The word submit is not actually in the, the Greek text. There's no word there. So wives, wives, keep on doing what you're already doing to everyone else anyways. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. So every time a husband's telling their wife to submit, I'm like, don't start there because you need to die. If, if you start saying to your wife, submit, she can say to you, well, die to yourself. Take up your cross. That's the model you're given, husbands. So how is your, how is your marriage going to flourish? It's not going to be because you're pointing at each other or you just need to feel respected. You just need to feel love. It's going to happen because you choose to lay down your life and submit to one another and replace the false narratives that you've seen in your parents or your grandparents or that mentor couple and accept the biblical teaching. Are you with me? Just one little example that I'm clearly passionate about. Um, <clears throat> parenting, narratives on parenting, narratives all over your life. What are the stories you believe and how do you can challenge them against the stories of Jesus? One, a big one is finances. Um, we're talking about 2018. Finances is a big one. For example, some of us carry around all sorts of anxiety and worry just talking about personal finances. Anyone? Let's just do again. Let's just be super safe. We've already said some of, yo, we're not going to talk about it. Okay, look at this. Raise your hands. If you have that budget meeting and your blood, you start, anyone fight with their spouse in the budget meeting? Anyone? We're in a safe place. We're videoing everything so we can call you out. Like, so, like most of us in this room are in significant debt. Two-thirds of this room went into debt to, to afford Christmas, statistically speaking. So there's all sorts of issues around the narrative of finances. We haven't been taught that God's generous. We haven't been taught how to steward our finances. We've been taught to keep it private. We've been taught to consume by a cultural narrative. We've been taught to pay it off later by a cultural narrative. And how your family's handled finances also directs your interaction in the world. And so there are narratives around our money that we need to confront with Scripture and the life of Jesus. It's not just about stewardship. We talk, it's so funny that we talk more about stewardship when Jesus talks mostly about generosity. Like, if, we're, if we really want to get serious, the second most talked about subject in the Bible is money and possessions. Imagine if, like, like most of our talking was about the kingdom and the money. Half our church would leave. Every once a month, we're going to talk about money. Half of us would leave because it's such a private thing. When, when it should be in our house churches, so accountable, it's like, oh, we should have no debt in our house churches. We should have zero debt as a way of being a model to the world. And not just that, we should challenge each other to be more generous. How much did you give last year? Great, that's great. I'm going to challenge you to give more and hold you accountable. Ooh, it's so quiet right there. Wow. <laughs> we're not doing that. I'm just I'm inspiring your imagination. Alex and I were talking about this on our date night, or, or not on our date night, another time we had. Um, we were talking, because every year we set financial goals. 
and of what we want to give. And last year in 2016, going into 2017, <clears throat> I felt like the Lord said to me, give this ridiculous amount of money. And I say it's ridiculous because it was ridiculous. Um, and it didn't make sense. I brought it to Alex and she's like, and I quote, hell no. I don't manage our budget. She does. And for the grace of God, because I would destroy it. But because and there's a lot of reasons for that. But here's what you have to know. Um, we got six months into the year. Uh, we had a baby, Amos. And three weeks into his life, God says, sell your house. It's an idol. It was a year and a half in owning a home. And we were there for the long haul. And God was, I felt like God was testing our, our, our commitment to him. And so we, Alex said yes to that, which is crazy. For me, it's easy. I'm, I'm like, whatever, I'll just follow you because, like, I'm not attached. For her, she said yes. We sold our home. It was a, I, I've shared this openly. It was this really brutal process. Um, but as a result of that, the number God asked us to give, we were able to give above and beyond that. And it was costly. In fact, we were just talking yesterday, and she's like, Darren, can we just ease up on the giving thing just this year? Like, let's catch up a little bit. Because she feels the weight of just constantly giving out. Now, I share this story with Alex because what you need to know about her, she did not always have this mindset. She had, I was talking to her, she was, had this great, she's like, Darren, one of my narratives that I, I grew up with was hold on to it um, when you have it because it won't be there in the future. Anyone else have that narrative? Like, just hold on to what you have and save because you don't know what to expect. And the other narrative she lived with was expect the worst and hope for the best. And in expecting the worst, you prepare for the worst case scenario. And so in her preparing for the worst case scenario, she lived with all sorts of anxiety and fear about what is to come. So that meant hoard, saving, holding on to, not releasing, and what we call a scarcity mindset. But that's not a biblical mindset. It's an, we live, the scriptures teach us an abundance mindset, that you start off with more than enough. We've talked about this in, in our talks on generosity. And the reason for her narrative was shaped by her family, by her past, by divorce, by scarcity, literal scarcity. And she managed this philosophy of life that, um, that produced her to save and be genius with finances and planning. But it didn't empower generosity and giving. And then she got married to me, which was go into debt and give everything away. And our narratives collided brutally in marriage. And we probably would have ended up in divorce if it wasn't for Bill. True story. Helping us navigate this philosophy. Because for me, it was like, clearly God says this, and you have to do this. You're a sinner. <laughs> I've used that line. I'm a horrible, sometimes I've been a terrible husband. And some of you have walked with me in season. And you, you would say, yeah, you are, you are a jerk. You are a jerk. By the grace of God, our marriage is so much better. Ten years later, challenging both of our narratives, submitting ourselves to the scriptures, we've realized now Alex has this abundant mindset of generosity, willing to give, um, even more so than me now. And it's, because it's become, become repetition, it's become practice, but it's changing the narrative of God and the way the world works. It's, you don't have to hold on to it. In fact, if you learn to open up and be like God, he will just funnel lots of life and resources through your hands because that's, that's, that reflects his character and heart. God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't steward his only son. He gave his only son. Oh, that's a good one. We should write that one down. <laughs> oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. You're, I'm giving that one right back to you. Okay, so how then, here's some, some quick steps and we'll pray. 
I can't claim that one. That was, first of all, that was the Bible. Second of all, that was the, G, uh, yeah, I'm not that smart. All right. So here's some practicals. How do we begin to replace? Read the Bible, number one. Read the Bible. We're doing this uh, read the Bible plan, and if you have a magnifying glass, you can read it. <laughs> this is the tiniest thing I've ever seen. We're going to print them bigger, I think. I don't know, but it's online. And, <clears throat> and there's a month right here the size of your thumb. Um, no, but we're reading one. It's so great. We're reading one chapter uh, in the gospel for the next three months and one, prover- or one psalm or a proverb. And I want you guys to read. We just need to constantly be reading. And the, the reality is it's like 10% of the church reads regularly. you got to be in the Word. If you want to replace those bad thoughts, those false narratives, you have to immerse yourself in the true narratives, which is the Scripture, especially the Gospels, especially Jesus' life. If, if you're going to read anything uh, for a year, read the Gospels over and over again. I, I'm not, I, I love reading the Bible in a year. I'm not a big fan of that because I believe, because um, it can be cumbersome and exhausting. And sometimes when we're reading, reading through Chronicles or Leviticus, I'm just, I literally am falling back asleep. Um, but you should because all of the Bible is amazing and powerful and it's relevant to today. But I just feel like for us, as we move forward in biblical literacy, let's just start with the Gospels and the New Testament. We'll go there. So we're going to read through that slowly. Second, um, read good books. Read Dallas Willard, Divine Conspiracy, Abba Child. I read Abba's Child by Brendan Manning every year on identity because of my issues with my narrative of God. I'm not feeling love because of, like, I had, I've literally read that book every year since I was 19. Um, so Abba's Child, Divine Conspiracy, The Good and Beautiful God Series, Wounded Hero, Hero, uh, The Wounded Healer, Upside Down Kingdom. I have a list I've, I've created of really influential Christian books that have influenced my life. Um, um, and if you want that, uh, just email us and we'll, we'll email it to you. Third is to sit under teaching at the, at the gardener at, at, at this gathering. And I, I actually had this conversation recently with our, our, our staff. I was saying that can anyone recall one sermon that changed their life? And I was challenging them, saying, not really. In my own life, it was never one sermon. And I was saying that in a way to like kind of downplay the power of a sermon. But then I was so convicted because I realized it's not one sermon, but it's being in the presence of the word being preached. Like the preaching of the word has power to transform. Don Williams, one of my mentors, taught me this. It's the public proclamation of Jesus is, is enough to bring transformation. And that, over a long period of time in a local community, will bring renewal of your mind. Fourth is the gift of podcasting. Podcasts. We have people, two, like thousands of people listen to our podcasts that, that live in different parts of the world um, and are following along. You can do that with other great teachers. So don't just, I mean, listen to me or, or Bill, but like Mike Erie has influenced me, John Mark Comer, from Bridgetown, who's preached here. He's influenced me. Mark Sayers, if you want to write these names, John Tyson. These are also friends that I'm in a pastor group with. They're amazing men of God who preach way better than me. Um, the, the fifth is get a mentor. If you want, and this is hard, we're a young church. So anyone here that's older than 35, you are a mentor. Um, I'm not going to play around with this. Actually, the call in this season of our church is we need men and women who are a little bit older than the rest of us. There's a lot of college students coming here asking for mentors. It's time to start investing in, in the next generation. 
If you're five years ahead, you can invest. If you know a little bit, give a little bit away what you have. We need men and women to walk with each other. That's the way church is designed to be. No more sitting on the sidelines. All right? You need to invest your life. If you have a little bit of breakthrough in the kingdom, give that little bit away. Don't wait for an email to go out. Go looking for it. In your giving, you will receive way more, I promise. So we find a mentor. For me, Bill Doctrum has been it. I've had Don Williams, Todd Proctor, Francis Chan has become an amazing mentor for me. If you can't find one that's living, read a dead one. <laughs> Dallas Willard, Brennan Manning, Martin Luther. Read, read amazing people that have lived throughout history. Pete Scazzaro is alive and well. He's in New York. He's the emotionally healthy guy. I'm, he's totally mentoring me right now. Six is practice replacing false narratives with true narratives. I'll close with this. Look, all to say, get teaching and, and into your mind and imagination. Whatever medium helps you, get into it. Run. One of my neighbors, she, she runs and listens to podcasts. And that's exactly it. Like she's thinking about the things that are most important. Create space. If you can't do it when you have your mom of five kids in your home life, go for a run and do it. And God will use that. But here's the thing. Um, transformation is just the beginning. Okay? It's not the last. And a lot of people will start there and that will be the only thing and it will stall out. You won't experience change. Why? Because you can't think your way to Christ-likeness. You can't think your way to Christ-likeness. You can come to church and be inspired, but have you ever been inspired on Sunday and by Monday afternoon, you're, always back, you're already back to your old pattern of life? Yeah, anyone? Like you're, I told Alex in a text, I'm so sorry, I won't lose my temper again. 10 minutes later, I'm hungry. I lost my temper again. Like, Why? I talk about that a lot. I think that's a sin God's calling me out on, and it needs to stop. But it, it has to do um, with more than just thinking your way into Christ like this, because um, knowing something is not the same thing as doing it, which is still not the same thing as wanting to do it. There's a gap between what we know and what we do. And the philosopher James K.A. Smith tells this amazing story of him and his wife getting into the slow food movement. He's reading this book, eating whole, plant-based, locally grown food, and he was totally into it, writing into the margins, highlighting it. But then he looked up and he realized he was reading it in the Costco food court eating a hot dog. <laughs> the antithesis of everything he was reading. The problem was he loved hot dogs still. And that's it, see? What we love in our heart has a far greater influence on what we do than what we know in our head. This is why we know eating sugar is bad for us, but you can't help it. Why? Because you love sugar. You love cupcakes or donuts. So teaching is just the beginning. Next week we'll talk about practices. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about The Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.
Twirling to move Cause we 